Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning we'll be returning to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Now, a week ago, we focused on the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2, which contain Paul's call to unity, humility, and selflessness. But, but even in that sermon, we were careful to connect that call, just like Paul does, to Christ. And this is seen most clearly when you look ahead to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians 2, 5, that's where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or this is read in the CSB translation, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Those first five verses are a call to us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a call from Paul to us to adopt the same attitude that Christ had specifically in our relationships with each other in the same church. So last week, our focus was primarily on how we are called by God to pursue unity through humility and selflessness. But this week, our focus will be primarily on Christ and on how he modeled the greatest humility and selflessness the world has ever seen. So I want to begin by rereading our text from chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 11. So chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Now, as I said last week, this is a great text from beginning to end. But as we read it, I imagine, if you think about it, you're able to see that verse 5 is really the transition verse in that, in that text. They have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ. Now, on the one hand, that looks back to verses 1 to 4. It reminds us when we are being called to humility 
and selflessness. We're simply being called to imitate Christ who lived that way. But on the other hand, verse 5 is also the bridge to verses 6 to 11, where we learn of the mind of Christ through a beautiful poem. Now, just a quick word on the poetry in these verses. Okay, if, you, if you read about this text, like in people who talk about Philippians, okay, there is a lot, I mean a lot, of discussion about the poetry in these verses. Okay, there's a lot of discussion, for example, about whether those verses, verses 6 to 11, were actually one of the earliest Christian hymns that they would sing. That, that certainly could have been, especially verses 6 to 8. But we don't know for sure. But what is the most clear is that these verses are poetic and they are beautifully written. Okay, these verses stand out in all of Paul's writings and really in the whole New Testament. But, but what I want to say is that what is more beautiful than the poetry okay, is the object of the poem. The most beautiful thing about this text is Christ and the truth that is revealed about Christ through this beautiful poem. Now, along these lines, there are many ways you could break down verses 6 to 11. But the simplest way to divide the text, if you look at verses 6 to 11, simplest way to divide it is to note that verses 6 to 8 describe the humility of Christ and verses 9 to 11 describe the exaltation of Christ. Or to put that another way, verses 6 to 8 describe the downward movement of Christ all the way to the cross, while verses 9 to 11 describe the upward movement to how Christ has now been exalted to the seat of highest honor. Now, we're going to follow that basic flow of the text, but what I think is even more helpful for grasping the text is to pay careful attention to the seven main verbs in the text. Okay, and listen, if, if you is not real good at grammar, do not have no worries. Okay, I will help us with this. Okay? If you hear about verbs and you're like, I'm not sure if I could spot them <laughs> in this text. It is okay. okay. But the basic gist is there are seven main verbs in that poem. Okay? And everything else connects to those. Okay? The first three verbs, actions, are all done by Christ. The next two are done by God the Father to Christ. And the last two will be done by all of us to Christ. Okay? Now, this is actually going to be up on the PowerPoint uh, today so you can see this. But also, if you would like to see this in Spanish, there was a handout back by the headphones for you. And we also have extra with Marcos. So if anybody needs a handout of this in Spanish, uh, we have that for you too. Okay? So let's turn to the text. We're going to start in verse 5, since the sentence starts there. And I will go on. Okay? So have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's the last part of verse 6 that has the first main verb in the poem. Christ did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped. This is what Christ did not do. Okay? Christ did not consider his equality with God as something to exploit. Okay? Or here is how I would describe it. Christ refused to use his equality with God for his own advantage. <clears throat> that is the heart of what Paul is getting at. And notice what the first line of verse 6 says. Christ refused to do this even though he was in the form of God. Okay, so this is Paul looking back to before Christ became a human being. Before Christ became a man, Christ already existed. Christ already was in the form of God. Now, I think that word form can be confusing because sometimes we use a word like form to talk about something that looks like something but isn't actually the real thing. Okay? So, for example, I might see a shadow on the ground or a cloud in the sky and then say to someone, hey, I think that shadow or that cloud has the form or shape of whatever, you know, an elephant or a fish or a cross or whatever I happen to see in it. Okay? But when I say it that way, we all know that I'm implying that the form or shape isn't the real thing. But that's not what's happening with this Greek word. That's not what's happening in this text. Paul uses the same word form two times in the text. It's not just in verse 6. It's also in verse 7. And in the first case, Paul's highlighting what Christ already was in reality. And in the second case, he's highlighting what Christ also became in reality, not just in appearance. Christ was already in the form of God in verse 6. But in verse 7, Paul says, Christ took on the form of a servant. Okay, now, so in, so in verse 6, Paul's emphasizing Christ was already fully God in reality. So in the NLT translation, it says just basically Christ was God. Or as the NIV says, Christ was in very nature God. And then in verse 7, Paul highlights that Christ then took on the form of a servant. Or as the NAV says, Christ took on the very nature of a servant. <clears throat> so what's the point? Even though Christ was fully God and possessed all the power and rights of being God, what did he do? Christ refused to use his equality with God for his own advantage. That is the point. And, and by the way, that is in direct contrast to so many of the myths of the Greek and Roman gods that everyone in this day would have been familiar with. These false gods who, in all their stories, would exploit their deity to their own advantage. The gods would use man, in particular, for their own advantage and pleasure. But Christ, who was fully God, refused to use his real equality with God 
for his own advantage. He did not consider his rights as something he had to clutch onto. And here's where it might be helpful to think of a contrast between Christ and Adam. Because if you think of Adam, the first man, Adam was not God. He was a creature. But he tried to grasp equality with God in the garden. But Christ, who was fully God, was willing to let go of his rights. He refused to use his equality with God to his own advantage. And we think about this. What God has ever done such a thing? Even in the stories about the gods. I mean, and then you think, who would not want a God who would do that? But that is the, only the beginning of what Christ did in the poem. So let's read on from verse 6 into verse 7. Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's the second main verb, the second thing Christ did. Christ emptied himself by taking on our flesh. So in verse 6, Christ refused to use his equality with God to his own advantage. In verse 7, Christ instead emptied himself by taking on our flesh. Now, as you might imagine, there have been a lot of discussions about that phrase, Christ emptied himself. I don't plan to go into detail on all of those, but I'll say a few things. First, this is not saying that Christ emptied himself of the things that made him God. In other words, Christ did not stop being God when he became man. This text is about how Christ poured himself out for us, about how Christ laid aside his glory that he rightfully had as God and took on our flesh. Remember, Christ already existed in the form of God. He was already in his very nature God, but instead of using that to his own advantage, he emptied himself by taking on our flesh. He truly became a human being, a servant to all. So to to understand this, I think it's important to ask the right question. Because when we hear a phrase like, Christ emptied himself, the question we want to ask is, of what? Like we say, Christ emptied himself. You say, of what? Like that's what we think. But the question that Paul actually answers in the text is different. The question Paul answers is, how? Okay, so we say, Christ emptied himself. And Paul wants us to ask, how? How did he empty himself? And the answer is, by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. That's how he did it. He added human flesh. That is why it's often said that Christ did not empty himself by deletion. Christ emptied himself by addition, by adding our flesh. Christ, who is fully God, took on our flesh. He entered our world. Christ became fully man. This is about his incarnation. 
And not only did Christ become human, Christ took on the form of a servant. And there is no more memorable sign of that than in what happened in Bethlehem. Think of his birth. Christ was born to a poor young virgin named Mary, and he was born in a stable, placed in a feeding trough. But that was just the beginning of how he lived. Let's read on into verse 6, from verse 6 into verse 8. So Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And there is the third main verb in the text. The third thing Christ did, Christ humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. Christ's entire life from birth to death was marked by humility. He lived the life of a humble servant. He did not come to be served, but to serve. <clears throat> and the consistent testimony throughout the Gospels is that Christ came here specifically to do the will of his Father. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient in every way, all the way to death. There was never a time when Christ sought his own interests above others. Not even once. There was never a time when Christ rebelled against his Father. Not even one. Christ was in every way the perfect man, all that we were called to be. But the extent of his humility is beyond what we could have imagined. Christ stepped down first from his glory into our world and took on our flesh. But even then, he did not take the seat of honor. He became a servant to all. Who can forget what Jen read earlier about Christ washing the feet of a bunch of proud, self-centered disciples. But he did not stop there. He humbly obeyed all the way to death. But not just that, he humbly obeyed all the way to death on a cross. Christ did it all in submission to his Father, and he took every step for the good of other people. He did it to take away our sins, to pay for them with his own blood. And Christ was shamed so that we might never be put to shame. And I ask again, what God has ever done such a thing? Who would not want to get behind a God like that? Christianity has a much better story to tell than other religions. And the best thing of all is that the story it tells is true. These are the three things Christ did in the text. And in response, God the Father did two things to Christ. So I want to look at that. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. 
This is the first thing God did in response to Christ. God exalted Christ to the seat of highest honor. Paul uses one verb to describe a lot of what happened on the other side of the cross. After Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, after he was taken down from the cross and buried, on the third day, God the Father raised Christ from the dead. This was the vindication of Christ, the proof that he was in the right and everyone else was in the wrong about him. And then after Christ appeared for 40 days, Christ ascended back to heaven and God the Father gave Christ the seat of highest honor at his own right hand. That is all included in that one verb that God has highly exalted him. But that's not all that the Father did to Christ. There's a second verb in the text. Let's look at verse 9 again. <clears throat> Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name. This is the second thing that God the Father did to Jesus. God gave Jesus the name above every name. So he's not just given the seat of highest honor, he's given the name of highest honor. And the name that he's given reflects not just what he accomplished, but who he really is. But the question we might want to ask, and I don't know if you've thought about this with this text, is what is the name? What is the name above all names? What name was given to Christ that can reflect all that he's done and truly reveal who he is. Okay, there are really two options in the text. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, okay? But I'm going to point out the two options, okay? To see the first, <clears throat> read verse 9 and 10, okay? 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. If you stop there, what is the name that is above all names? It would seem to be Jesus. Okay? This is possible. And especially in English, that's how it sounds, I think, if you only read to verse 10. Okay. Now, obviously, you would say, well, Jesus already had that name. Right? Like he had that name throughout his whole, whole life. Okay? But it is, there's no doubt that the name Jesus takes on greater significance after the cross and resurrection. It becomes the name that we love above all names. Now, if the text stopped there in verse 10, I might lean to that, to that idea, okay? But the text doesn't stop there. There's one more verse, verse 11, and I think it's in verse 11 that it becomes clearer what Paul has in mind by talking about the name above all names. So pick up in verse 9, and we'll read to verse 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's in that verse that I think we get confirmation of the name above all other names. What is the name 
granted to Jesus that shows what he accomplished and that reveals all that he is, what he has truly always been. I think it is the name Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. There are several reasons I think that is the name, but I'll just highlight two. The first is that that is in direct contrast with the Roman world of the time. Their main proclamation of a Roman citizen was Caesar is Lord. This was the Roman gospel, if you will. This was their confession. And as you probably remember by now, Philippi was a Roman colony. This Roman confession carried significant weight. But through the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus, we come to find out that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one and only true Lord of the world. But the second reason that I think the name above all names is Lord is that this text is referencing the Old Testament text I read earlier this morning. Do you remember that text? It was from Isaiah chapter 45. Just listen to a couple of the verses. God says, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord will it be said of me, our righteousness and strength, and to him shall come and be ashamed all who were against him. In that text, where there is this huge emphasis on how there's only one true God, what do we find? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will swear allegiance to whom? To the Lord, to Yahweh. In Philippians 2, Paul has that text in mind. But in Philippians 2, to whom will every knee bow? It is to Jesus. To whom will every tongue confess and swear their allegiance? It is to Jesus. And what will every tongue confess on that day? Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh. This is what the early Christians came to see. That the human being named Jesus, that they saw and heard and touched and saw die on a cross, was none other than Yahweh come in human flesh. It is that name, Lord, that I think is the name above all other names. And this all leads to the last two verbs in the poem, which are the two things we will all do to Christ. And what are those? Every knee will bow to Christ as king, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is where the world is headed. This is where you are headed. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. The world is headed toward universal 
confession of the same thing. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I want to be clear about something that is very clear throughout the Bible. That is that this does not indicate that there will be universal salvation. In other words, this does not mean that all will be saved in the end. And I rarely quote other people at length in a sermon, but I found this one paragraph really helpful from a guy named D.A. Carson, Don Carson, I guess is his name. He wrote this about this text in a, in a little book he wrote on Philippians. And I just try to help you follow this, okay? It says, not for a moment can this passage be used to support universalism, which is the view that every single person will be saved in the end. In the Isaiah 45 passage, although everyone confesses and although everyone bows the knee, nevertheless, all who have raged against him will be put to shame in the text. So here in Philippians chapter 2, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it does not follow from that that everyone will do that out of happy submission. The text promises Jesus will have the final word. No one will stand against him, but there will not be universal salvation. Instead, there will be universal confession. And this means that either we repent and confess him by faith now, or we will confess him in shame and terror on the final day. But confess him, we will. Now today, we have paid careful attention to the seven main verbs in the text. Christ did three things. God the Father did two things to Christ, and we will all do two things to Christ. But the poem actually ends with the one ultimate end of all things. And that can be found in the very last phrase of verse 11, where Paul adds, to the glory of God the Father. This is all to the glory of God the Father. And this text gives us a taste of the inner working of our triune God, our God who is forever Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father loves his Son. And in the text, glorifies his Son to the point that all confess their allegiance to him. But the Son loves the Father too. And in the end, Paul sees that even the exaltation of the Son will further glorify the Father for all that he has done. And so even in this, we are reminded of the selflessness of Christ. He never looked out for his own interest. And he did not seek his own glory. Even though, unlike us, he's actually worthy of it. Christ came for our good and died for our good. But what he did was also for the glory of his Father. Now, I have tried to find a balance between diving into the deep theology of this text and doing whatever it takes to keep us from missing what's just clear in the text. Okay? I hope you've been able to follow along on a deep dive into the mind of Christ. But as we close, 
I, I want to make sure that my three closing comments are as clear and direct as possible. What should we do in light of this poem, or more than that, in light of what it tells us about Christ? Number one, confess Christ as Lord now. Pledge your allegiance to Christ now. If you have not bowed the knee to Christ, know this, you will. We all will. The real question is not about whether we will. It is only about when. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. <clears throat> but those who bow the knee now in humility and repentance and sorrow for our sins, those who swear their allegiance to him now will be saved. And those who do not will be lost. Paul says this very well in Romans 10. He says, this is the message we proclaim. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he says, and this is for everybody. For there is no distinction between Jew, Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord over all people, and he is rich to all people who call on him. Application one, confess Christ as Lord now. Two, worship Christ. What God has ever done what Christ has done. Who would not want to get behind a God who would do this for you? Christ is a Savior worth trusting, a Lord worth worshiping. He refused to use his equality with God for his own advantage. He emptied himself by taking on our flesh, and then he humbled himself even further, all the way to death, even death on a cross, and he did it all out of his great love for us. And then God the Father raised him, exalted him, gave him the seat of highest honor, gave him a name above all other names. So what ought we to do when we think of Christ? We ought to worship him. Remember the Christmas carol in the summer. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. And finally, I don't want us to forget that this deep dive into the mind of Christ is directly connected in the text to Paul's call to us to have the same mind with each other. In other words, all of the theology, and especially in this text, all the Christology, was written down specifically to change how we think and how we act toward each other 
in the same church. And so what's the best way to describe what we ought to do in light of the text? Let's leave our pride and our selfish ambition at the foot of the cross. Those are the things Paul knew would destroy unity within a church. And so what ought we to do in light of Christ and his cross? We lay down all our pride and our selfish ambition at the foot of his cross. Let's pray. Father, would you please take these words by your spirit, produce in us all that you desire, the understanding, the repentance, the faith, the love, the adoration, I ask this in Jesus' name.